At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Well, this is the Aeon Byte interview, but it's not the Aeon Byte interview. It is our first ever Finding Hermes podcast, which I've been talking about since the beginning of the year, and now it's a reality for reasons I'll disclose. And I can't think of a better guest than uh, my friend, a person I admire much and whose work has informed me for many years, and that is Eric G. Wilson. Eric, thanks for coming back or being here for the first time. Miguel, it is my pleasure. It's always a treat to talk to you. Yeah. So how have you been in 2020? Well, probably like everybody else, uh, pushed down by the demiurge. Uh, but but I'm, man- I'm managing quite well. And as I was, I was saying, I feel, I feel quite fortunate. It could, it could be much worse. We're, we're doing okay down here. Yes, yes. Many people are suffering. Many people are under a lot of stress and a lot of fear, which is the a reason I started this sort of uh, feature of Aeon Byte. Uh, of course, the Gnostics were always, you might say, history's first deaf psychologists. When you read their text, they were very much into mental and emotional healing, not just transcending the world. And of course, Jung and others have noticed this. And I felt I needed, this is in January, I said, I need to find something to really work more surgical on mental health issues, alcoholism, stuff that you and I have talked about in the past and just, you know, conversations. You've written books. You've been very transparent about your life. And once uh, the pandemic hit and the social unrest, I said, I'm going to make this a reality. I'm going to go for it. And uh, here we are. So uh, my first question, of course, is uh, uh, Aristotle basically said that a poet is better at understanding history because they than a historian because they deal with universals. They see the big picture. You, Eric, you're uh, both a poet and a historian. So I thought I'd ask you from uh, my an archetypal, mythic, or literary view, how do you see 2020? Well, it's um, I'll, I'll start out with the particular, uh, and, and maybe my particular experience can move to the universal. Uh, I think 2020 has snuck up on me in terms of, of mental health. Uh, as, as you know, I've, I've discussed on this show and in my work that I, I struggled with bipolar disorder. I've also struggled with issues of addiction concerning alcohol. And I've been through a lot of therapy over the years. I've taken a lot of medication over the years. And I felt like I had come to a pretty good place. I, I got divorced three years ago. I'm, I'm now engaged to be married again. Uh, so, so there's a lot of hope in my life. 
but but about a month ago it's like the the darkness came in again I, and what, what i realize is that you know, part of part of my curse i guess maybe as a thoughtful person maybe as someone who has bipolar disorder is to be a very sensitive person and kind of hypersensitive and what i thought i had managed which was my mental health i realized i had not so so i i, I had to re-enter therapy and interestingly enough my my therapist said he's 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 trained as a zen buddhist as well as a, a practitioner of mindfulness he said you know the, that history itself goes in rhythms and, and 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 sometimes history itself can go through a kind of melancholy time he didn't get astrological but there's a sense that sometimes saturn the melancholy planet will will, will, will take over and you can see it as obviously a, a burden a test a catastrophe but also you can see it as an invitation to look into places inside you've not looked before and and try to find reserves of strength you've you've not looked before that was a powerful thing he said to me so i've i'm so glad we're having this conversation i've gone back into theory th therapy very heavily now and i'm trying to take take him seriously and and see you know history itself in a kind of melancholy moment and that being an invitation to slow down a lot of us are taken away from our daily schedules. We're taken away from our responsibilities and that makes us anxious, but also we could say, Hey, that, that's good. I'm forced to look within. I'm forced to sit down. I'm forced to stare at a wall. Um, so I'm trying, I'm trying to take that, that very seriously. And, you know, I'm 53 and, you know, as I move into that, that, I don't know what phase I would call it. Definitely another phase of my life. Um, I, I, I really want to, um, I'm trying to be more responsible to the people that I'm close to. Uh, I've done a lot of therapy work that's focused very much on me. And, and I think that was necessary, but also there, was, there could be a little narcissism there. So I guess to answer, answer your question, I would say, you know, if, if I could bring the poet and me and the historian together, I would say that the positive way to see this time, and, and again, it's, I've had it very easy compared to a lot, but a positive way to see this time is a, an invitation to sit, an invitation to look within, and, and yes, think about yourself, but also think about yourself in relation to others um, with maybe a, a new kind of rigor. And, and what I've realized that mental health for me is less about interior exploration and more about how I relate to other people. That, that's, I guess that's the main insight I've had in the past year or two of my life. Yeah, that's a great insight. I, I can say for me, similar, once the pandemic hit, I was at a stage of my life where things had fallen apart, some business ventures and other things, nothing major. But when the pandemic hit, I could feel this energy coming within me, like everybody, the unknown, the anxiety, the fear. And it was so intense. I looked inside of myself you know, before the interview, talked about an apocalypse. There was a, a personal apocalypse and I saw inside myself and I, I realized like you, the house was not in order. There is still those hundred forms of fears. There are trauma, there are complexes, shadows that needed attention. And I, my mouth, my jaw dropped to my floor. It's like, holy shit. I thought I would, you know, like you, I'm putt-putting. It's okay. I'm a middle-aged guy. Gonna get there. Yeah. And, but I'm so grateful for it because uh, I had to pivot a reason we're having this interview, but I also realized, uh, my goal was to inspire others. I think that was the, the real realization. It's like, I have a short time 
And the best I can do beyond looking inside myself is to really inspire others with as much of what I can offer to the world. Mm -hmm. And that's basically while things were falling apart, things were coming together in my life from all these uh, features and opportunities that I've had. So it's been an incredible experience and I hope it continues. But, and like you, I mean, we've talked before, Eric, uh, bipolar is hard because you never beat it. It's always going to shift. It's like the alien or something, one of those monsters. It does shift, and what works yesterday is not going to work. And if you think you're out of the woods, that monster is coming right for you. So, I mean, you agree with that, the, the, the challenge of being bipolar? Well, you know, Jung has this really fancy term, enantiodromia, which is Heraclitus' term for running the other way. And what he meant by that is the harder we repress a fear or a desire, the more monstrously it will come back to get us. It will, it will run the other way. And I think you're exactly right. I, this idea that you can somehow beat bipolar. I didn't quite use that language, but I thought I had it managed. I thought, you know, one reason, one reason I was so distraught by, by my mental health all these years, because I was in a bad marriage. I thought I'm out of a bad marriage now, so I'm good. Well, yeah. I, when I wasn't looking, it came back and it, it, it attacks me really, really hard. Yeah. And so, th- so there's a vigilance I've learned that is required. In, in some ways, managing my bipolar is my life's work. And, and I think anyone who suffers from mental health issues, or indeed anyone who just wants to live the life of the soul, that, that's a life's work in which we must be ever vigilant. And of course, it can be exhausting sometimes. And, but I, you know, to, to go back briefly to, to what you were saying at the beginning of, of, of what you just said, you know, kind of, I, I feel like, yes, I've been broken down in a lot of ways by the virus. Many of us have, and, and, but that showed me things about myself. But even culturally, you know, we've had so many breakdowns, uh, you know, with the Black Lives Matter, for instance. We've just had some major societal upheavals, a lot of pain, a lot of trauma, but also people have come together um, in ways that they haven't in a very long time. So, so there have been positives, you know, to come out of this, not only individually for me, but also in terms of, of our overall culture, I think. Yeah, and uh, as I always say, the answers seem to be always there. We talked years ago about not having to feel bad about our mental issues. Uh, I think uh, somebody said that depathologizing thinking. And that's one of the things I realized this year is I don't, have to be ashamed of these forces that are coming from the unconscious, even my bipolarism, because these are all a message that my unconscious, that the gods, that the pleroma is telling me. And if I learn to listen and navigate and sort of take the surf, I'll really be doing my own destiny. I think, what did Jung say? Uh, Free will is doing exactly what you're supposed to be. In other words, there's no free will. The psyche has the agenda and it's whether my ego wants to pain or or wants to be like Jonah fighting, being in the, you know always fighting and being in the whale. I think those are the two choices. You know, Nietzsche called it the Amrafati, the love of fate. That you know, we we are destined to be who we are, and we can choose to love that destiny or fight against that destiny. And I think as you know, being born with any kind of mental health issue, yeah, that's your destiny. That's that's what you were dealt with. Uh, when you were born and you can, you can choose how, how you're going to address it. Um, I feel like, I feel like, you know, when, when I'm at my best, I feel like my bipolar disorder is my great gift. I feel like, I feel like that's what's given me a lot of pain, but also it's given me 
my curiosity. It's, it's given me my desire to imagine other ways to exist beyond this. Um, it's inspired me to write and, and, and to teach. Now, I don't always see it that way. Sometimes it's like, fuck this shit. You know, this is, this is terrible. I'd rather be, I don't want to be bipolar. You know, I, I want to be normal, but, but, but it is, you know, I have it. And, and, and everybody has something, uh, even if a person isn't clinically depressed, we, we all have our demons. Obviously that's what Jung says. So I, I like this idea that you, you've just articulated about how you know, to listen to the voice within, to listen to the voice of, you know, you would call it the collective unconscious. We can call it all sorts of things that are deep interiors. I feel like the, the, the older I get, the more I psychologize the Gnostic mythology. And you know, we all have a demiurge in our, in our mind. We all have an Eyal the Boas, you know, lurking around. Uh, William Blake called it the covering cherub. He said that we, you know, we have within us these forces that block us from Eden. You know, just as God took, put two cherubs with flaming swords at the gate of Eden after he, out, he cast Adam and Eve out. And so this, this noise um, that blocks out this inner voice, the demiurge, the Yaldabaoth within, it's tricky. Um, and and, I, and I, feel, I feel like I got duped in a way by it, by, by saying, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm mentally healthy. I'm, I'm okay. I, I, I've got it. Um, I, don't, I don't need to do the work anymore. So there, there's that. But also to go back to what you said, there's that seduction of feeling guilty for saying, hey, I'm fucked up and, <laughs> and, 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 and I've got to spend some time dealing with it. And, you know, I, I think there's still a stigma attached to mental health in our, in our culture. It's gotten a lot better in the past 25 years. But the, the courage it takes to say, I have this problem and I, I need to take care of it. Well, that means I may not be able to, to make, make all my appointments. That means I may not be able to be the ideal father and husband all the time. I'm going to try. Um, I think that's, that's a, that's a part of the, the, the mental, um, I guess the mental disease life that doesn't often get addressed is, is that you have to kind of say to people, I'm going to be a, I'm going to be a fuck up sometimes mm-hmm. given the traditional expectations of being a human being. And that's just how it's going to be. I mean, it's hard for me to do that. I was raised in a Protestant household. So, I mean, I still feel tremendous guilt. Um, but that's, that's just something I'm struggling with. And, and again, that, that voice of guilt is the demiurge within saying, Oh no, don't, don't take care of yourself. Don't do it. You're okay. You're okay. Don't do it. You don't need anybody. Yeah, you got right. to, yeah that's uh, what right. they always say in an A, the worst line or sentence any alcoholic and say is I've got this. Yeah. We're screwed. We're, <laughs> we're like Yaldabaoth. We're going to create a horrible universe. And yes, yes. yeah, I agree with you. And, I, again, there's nothing wrong with us if we listen to the psyche. We're just all different. We all need help, like all the time. And I'm glad there's a bipolar Eric because you you create it against happiness, secret cinema. My business is to create all the knowledge that you've given about Blake has inspired me and probably inspired many people. Of course, like you, when I'm on my manic down, it, it's irrelevant. I just have to ride that horrible. Wave. I, yeah, I wanted to read this for you because this is very powerful. Excuse me. Uh, it's because I have to always remember, and you've written about uh, David Foster Wallace, and it's from the New York Times, and I wanted to read it to you because it reminds me when I'm at the depths what where I really am and how, in a way, it helps me to get out of it because I know it's not true, just like the manic highs are. They're, don't they're, It's a lie. But... Uh, It's an article from the New York Times. Wallace described clinical depression as, quote, the great white shark of pain, 
a level of psychic pain wholly incompatible with human life as we know it, a nausea of the cells and soul, a sort of double bind in which any all of the alternatives we associate with human agency, sitting or standing, doing or resting, speaking or keeping silent, living or dying, are not just unpleasant but literally horrible. A radical loneliness in which everything is part of the problem and there is no solution. Somehow this really helps me. <laughs> am I strange, Eric? Because it's like he's describing where I am or where I am sometimes. Not at all. He, he is the great chronicler, chronicler of, of our age of, of mental illness. And, and of course, it's just, it breaks my heart that what happened happened. Mm. And I mean, this is an example. I, I, I often hear you know, people say, oh, my gosh, he was so selfish that he, that he killed himself, this and that. But when you hear something like that, you realize that probably if someone's going to do that, the pain is so intense that the next breath of life seems impossible. Uh, I, I, I mean, fortunately, I've not been to that precipice. Um, I've certainly seen it. Um, and I've, I suspect you have, too. The thing about Wallace for me is he's been a true soul doctor for me I mean, for, for years now. I, I've taught his work. I've read his work. And, and what's so powerful about his work to me is the therapeutic power of fiction making, I, I might put it. Uh, in that famous uh, um, commencement speech he gave at Kenyon College called This is Water, he basically says, if you're standing in the grocery line and you see this, you know, it, this woman with extremely loud kids in front of you and there's kids are screaming, they're bothering you. Uh, she seems so unpleasant. She's so abrasive. And you just think, Oh my God, I wish these people would just go away. Don't do that. But imagine her in a narrative of, you know, her, her husband of 30 years just left her. You know, she's, she has bipolar disorder herself. And in other words, imagine a kind of narrative in which you would treat her with compassion. Doesn't matter if it's real or not. And, and this, this is what I think about more and more um, in my own therapy. I guess you could call it, it, it's a form of mindfulness, but the idea that we, our lives are a narrative that we create. And if we find ourselves deeply depressed, we're caught in a bad narrative. And we have the ability to come up with a new way to imagine our lives. That, that's the great gift of Wallace, I, I, I think. So I, so, I, so for me, that brings together, I guess, my passions, which is, of course, writing and, and creativity. And to think about ultimately what will make me feel better is, is my imagination. I'm, I'm, I'm caught in a bad story. So maybe I can, I can revise it or, or alter it. You can't make a new one, but you can revise and, and alter it. I think that's really powerful. Yeah, there's a line that I love by um, uh, God who. Even cowgirls get the blues. Robbins. Who's the doctor? Tony? Yeah. Yes. Tim. Yeah. Yeah. Tim, Tim Robbins. Sorry. I was Tony Robbins. Robbins. I like it. Tony Robbins is another story entirely. <laughs> well, you know, well, he helps too. He, he's all he really, yeah, I have to admit, I have to admit he's a very powerful. Yeah. Man. I enjoy yeah. his work. I enjoy it. It's just NLP for Westerners. That's basically for continental Westerners. That's exactly right. Yeah. That's true. We rewiring your brain, but he always said it's never too late to have a happy childhood. And I realized, yes, we can rewrite. Yeah. We can't change it, but we can create new perspectives of why things happen to us. And, yeah. why we're here yeah. it's uh and i don't know if this happens to you but i'm i'm being very personal here i used to be the kind of uh three days three days up and down I, and i've been going to therapy and doing a lot of work on myself now for years i haven't let up because again i i, I know that monster but uh, i've been diagnosed as a rapid cycler 
Have you heard of that? Because uh, I used to think, well, do I have ADD? Do I have, but the thing is I will cycle so fast, like during the day and in a split second, I will forget data that I had when I was here because I'm down here. It's almost like it's a split personality. Mm-hmm. And that's why I, I mean, I've been, I've had two therapists telling me that's why I forget things. That's why. Mm-hmm. everything seems like a blur sometimes because I've become a rapid cycler because I've somehow been able to crunch, you know, fight this disease, but now it's sort of crunched up during the day. Oh God, it sounds terrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It just is what it is. I mean, yeah, you just, yeah. Again, you learn to navigate. Yeah. Well, I don't know about you, but I found the, the older I get, the, the, the more infrequent the mania. Uh, and the mm-hmm. more with the depression, <laughs> as our as our testosterone goes down, people who are bipolar tend to get the depression mm-hmm. or the mania, which is so that's another way of saying that's that's something I'm having to adjust to because I used to kind of the manias were dangerous, but sometimes they they felt pretty great, um, but 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 they don't they don't come around much anymore. Um, yeah, they're not as intense. <laughs> this yeah, Wall, Wallace. Um, if we can go back to David Foster Wallace for a second, he, he also uh, has some interesting things to say about cliche. Uh, he's, you know, he himself struggled with addiction. He was an alcoholic and, and had to go through a, a lot of rehab for that. And he said, you know, if you go to AA or, or any kind of rehab program, you get all these helpful cliches like, you know, fake it till you make it or something like that. And, and, and he says, okay, from one point of view, it's a cliche. It's, it's, it's stale. It's like a bumper sticker. It's not powerful, but he says, but if you think about it, maybe it is, you know, you know if, if, if whatever it takes to sort of get you out of where you are. And it's funny. My, my therapist is a big movie guy. And he says, sometimes when I'm really in a bad place, I'll like pick a favorite movie character and I'll say, I'm going to be like that guy just today. Yeah. <laughs> Which sounds silly and trivial, but it, but it, but it, but it kind of can, can defamiliarize you. It can kind of shake you out a, a little bit of those habits that are keeping you, keeping you bound in. So I guess I've become more and more interested in this idea of defamiliarization, of, of just shaking up your psyche a tiny bit, um, like shaking it loose a little bit or, or, or giving it like another way to see the world. And to me, that's what powerful art can really do. You know, if, if, you, if you look at Van Gogh's Starry Night, wow. And then you go outside and look at the stars. Well, they're not quite the same. Right? Or if you read Whitman's Leaves of Grass, you won't see the blade of grass quite the same way. So that, that's been another way of, of, of just thinking about the power of the imagination. Just, just because for me, depression is, is largely getting caught in a rut. You know, Blake calls it the same dull round. You know, when, when I'm depressed, every, every experience feels exactly the same as every other experience. It fucking sucks. You know, it's like, it's like channel surfing. Uh, and you know you've seen every show several times, but you can't stop channel surfing. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's that kind of feeling where, where time is just like one goddamn thing after another. Um, like Bob and, Geldof in the movie, the wall. Yes. Uh, that's Alan exactly Parker, who, yeah. He's just that's sitting exactly there. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's depression to me, one way to think about it. So anything to like find a new station, right. Or, you know, or, or, or get another TV set. I mean, these are kind of cliche ways to talk about mental health that they've, they've, the older I get, I get the less you know, kind of sophisticated I care to be. I mean, if like you know, whatever works, whatever gets you through the night, it's all it's right. Running, yeah. If it's a if it's a bad movie you like to watch, it makes you feel a tiny bit better. If it distracts you from your angst, fucking do it. 
Yeah, I agree with you. It's not those cliches. You just hold on to them whenever you're in the middle of a storm or you feel the unknown is in front of you. Yeah, fake it till you make it one day at a time. They they make sense. And I think they're all part of also the the idea of the egregore that I've been studying, sort of, you know, a tool by the psychic energy that you create with a group that is protective and it, it en- envelops you and it's for the group to reach a goal, which I've seen AA become, or that's how I see AA and other groups that I go to. And it's, uh, I think it's been very helpful. It's powerful. I mean, what you've just described is a Gnostic sect. You, mm-hmm. you, you create, you're creating a, a myth in a way that protects you against the, the, the cruel aeons up in the sky. I mean, I, I think that's fantastic. And, and I have to say that I've never really been close to my colleagues in my academic department. I've had a few good friends, but for the most part, I don't like hanging out with academics. You know, they're pretentious and, and, and boring for the most part. But during this um, virus, we, 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 we don't know what we're doing. So we've been talking a lot on Zoom and it kind of, new language has emerged. We're now talking in a very personal way about how we teach and we just let each other in. And suddenly it's a little bit like what you're talking about. It's become a kind of impromptu therapy community. And we've created terms that almost have a kind of word magic you know, that, that give us this sense of we're, we're protected because we're, we're, we're together here. And I just love that idea of like the, 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 you know, the, the pop-up Gnostic community <laughs> um, in a time of crisis. Yeah. Yeah. And I, yeah. It's what the Gnostics did. If, if something seems stuffy or you don't like it, re, like Wallace reinvented, create like the Valentinians go to Catholic church and they would just reinvent the entire with AA. And of course I was, I did that when I thought AA was pretty stuffy. And then I, you start doing some study and you realize that Jung was extremely influential to AA. Bill W admits it and wrote letters to, uh, Jung at the end of his life saying, you know, you gave me the first two, three steps and all this other stuff. Yeah. It's uh so it's, I don't know, maybe I'm recreating reality, but no, that's a fact. That's a fact. So, well, I feel, I feel like the, uh, the, you know, the Valentinians going to Catholic church is fabulous, but just the kind of revisionary impulse, the Gnostics had for the Judeo Christian tradition. It's like they, they looked at the, the God of Genesis and they said, well, he's not quite what you thought. And they created this whole new language. I mean, obviously, it's crazy language, like we've already thrown out the Aldeboath and, and the Pleroma and all this stuff. It's crazy. But you, it, it forces you to see all those old, stale, mythological figures in, in, a, in, a, in a fresh light. Um, Gnosticism, for all of its specialized vocabulary, I agree with you. It's kind of a fight against stuffiness in a way. <laughs> yeah, what you can call the the dull, bone crunching normalcy of life, which is just as dangerous as being manic or depressed. You know, it can kill you too. Give me, give me my mania and depression for that. <laughs> Not that I've escaped it with my mania and depression either, but you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, very interesting. And going to um, the theme of this Hermes, I'd like to share. <clears throat> excuse me. It was basically, I was, I read a book, Richard Smoley, many years ago, The Dice Game of Shiva. And he has a passage where he says, Hermes is the god of the mind and the god of tricks. That is not an accident. The Greeks knew it. And I read this book years ago, and it struck me so true. And one of those things that stayed me, and of course, 
Hermes is the god of transition, the god of doorways. Uh, he's the trickster. Uh, Hermes will lead the way or lead astray. He is this sort of crazy logos, very much like the Gnostic Jesus. And it is true that our minds are Hermes. I mean, do you have any idea, Eric? Do you ever wonder why is the human mind such a double-edged sword? I mean, for everybody, not just yeah. you know, everybody. If it, I mean, I'm sure that we can describe that with using evolution, but but the mind feels excessive. It, it, it feels it feels like it's got more going on than we need to survive. Um, I'm I'm not coming up with any theory now, but yeah, I, I think um, you and I both have, have kind of made that our life's work is trying to trying to think about thought, you know, trying to be conscious of, of, of consciousness and. If you suffer from depression, you know that 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 your mind is Hermes in a very deep way, right? Because you know your mind is what can kill you. I mean, it's, that's what the, depression is: your mind trying to trick you into valuing death over life, and not necessarily physical death, but kind of metaphorical death. You know, just valuing, um, not wanting to participate in the energies that 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 bring joy to other people. But but I've you know, I've, I've gotten into mindfulness therapy more lately, and, and I really think it's powerful. The whole kind of I mean, I did a lot of kind of Jungian work, and, and that was really helpful at a certain time in my life. But I, I feel like I, I kind of I need to look outside more. So so this this idea of of like training the mind, yeah, knowing it can trick you, but trying to trying to take its energy like like it's a stallion, right? You got to break it in a way, right? But so so then you can ride it in a beautiful fashion. I don't do that successfully, but I'm trying to. This idea that, you know, what's what's making me sad? Well, I'm not getting along with my 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 daughter. What are like two things I can do each day that might help me get along better with my daughter? Whatever they are, I'll do them, right? It's like forming these new sort of habits. So I guess on the one hand, my consciousness is infinite and mysterious and crazed and wonderful and dark and destructive. But at the same time, I've got to get up and go to work. So I've got to kind of figure out a way to 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 channel it, I guess, um, into healthier um, conduits. That's what I've been working on anyway. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, as they say, the mind is a wonderful servant, but a terrible master. If it gets a hold of us, it's going to yeah. destroy it. And it's interesting because I know in the 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 when Bill W. and Carl Jung were corresponding. Carl Jung was in his sort of late, he was a, towards the twilight of his life, and he told Bill W., nope, there is a dark archetype out there. Basically, he said there is the demiurge or the devil. It's independent. You can't integrate it like the shadow. Mm -hmm. And not everybody has it, but once you allow it into your mind, it's going to kill you. Because mm -hmm. that's all Jung could say is why do people, drug addicts, alcoholics like us, bipolars, mm -hmm. why do we have this penchant for destruction? So... Yeah. And I'm sure you've experienced it, and I'm sure you've uh, studied a lot of authors that were like that. Well, I can see why people believe in the devil. I really, no other explanation, no logical. It's not logical. I, I get that. I mean, there's, there's, there's got to be a name for that, that self-destructive force that we have within us that, that, that defies all logic and all reason and, and, and all. It's, it's perverse that all of us those with depression more so have within us this Poe calls it the imp of the perverse mm. This part in us that just wants to fuck us up. That wants to destroy us and kill us. 
And um, others too, unfortunately. And other, yeah, of course, other, others too. So I, I mean, I would, be, I would believe that you can call it the devil, you can call it the dark archetype, um, and 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 that to go back to what we were talking about earlier, you can't get rid of it. Right? You, you can't, <laughs> you can't, you can't, you can't eradicate the duality. I mean, the polarity is there, um, just like you can't have day without night. You can't have the joy without the pain. Um, in some ways, that's a facile thing to say, but. I, I think I got to the point where I was existing thinking that, oh, well, there's no, really no devil. It's okay. But just then, you know, oh, no, wait a minute. I look just like the devil. <laughs> I see myself in this light. So It's all in my head. Oh, yeah, the devil really is in my head. <laughs> I, I, you know, I've not gone through AA, but um, you know, I've talked to some people who, who work in mindfulness, and they say, of course, there are a lot of mindfulness overlaps, too, just the whole idea of the 10 steps, you know, the whole idea of, like, just doing things externally. I mean, you do the you do the meditation, the inner the inner gaze, and we you and I've done that a lot, and that's so powerful. But mm-hmm. but I wasn't adding that extra step of oh, that means you've got to figure out a way to translate those insights into action, and that's hard to do, uh, especially if you like really like it inside there as as I do. So just trying to come up with with actions that that and again they can be very banal, like I'll. I'll wash the dishes really well tonight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Something as simple as that can I'm finding can make a gigantic difference again for this for connecting to other people. For the longest time I thought I was an introvert. Um and, but now I'm thinking maybe I'm not. I mean I, I feel like I really need people. I don't the older I get the less I like to be alone. Um strangely enough. And so I'm trying to come up with ways to connect with others and cuz I think that will be really important for my for my mental health. Yeah, especially today. Yeah, I haven't gone to a meeting in months. I admit it. I've been bad, mostly because the thought of sitting in a room with a ma- having to share with a mask on. I'm like, no, not. I'm going to find other ways. But eventually, eventually, I'll get to. And I also see AA or really anything as a mystery religion. Uh, the four step inner inventory, having to say your your amends. It really you are going into the darkness and you are fighting these demons in Hades. And I see that. In AA and so many other disciplines, too. Yeah. The dark night of the soul remains one of the most powerful metaphors. Mm. I mean, St. John of the Cross in his great book um, from the 16th century called The Dark Night of the Soul, of course. And the whole idea of negative theology, which we know is very integral to Gnosticism, that you know, the only way to find the light is to go into very deep darkness. And <laughs> when you get to the very deepest darkness, darkness, you have to have the strongest light possible to reach down there. But you got to get down there. And I mean, I really feel like that doesn't go away either, but, but that's a different kind of darkness. I mean, to me, that's the darkness of, of embracing confusion, of, of, of embracing uh, your flaws, you know, em, em, embracing your mistakes and, and, but doing it with an eye toward moving out of that darkness into, into, into a new light. So in a way you're, cho- you're choosing your darkness. I mean, there's that kind of flat darkness of the of the dead arc of the devilish archetype we're talking about, and that's just what depression feels like to me. It's a flatness. You know, Wallace talked about how standing up or sitting down both seem excruciating. For me, it's more standing up and sitting down both seem equally unappealing. Right? It's like I don't really want to do anything. Do anything. <laughs> it's like everything seems equally insignificant and stupid. Um, is how is how I feel when I'm depressed. So it, it is a kind of flat line, um, a kind of numbness or lethargy. But that that generative darkness, the dark night of the soul, 
that takes work. You know, that, that you gotta, you gotta dig down there. And that's why you need Hermes. Hermes is, I think also the psycho, the psycho Pompus, right. Who leads down into the underworld. And that's when I need Hermes the most is going down in there. And again, I'm, I'm talking about it mythically, but for me, it's just facing what I most hate about myself and what I most fear concerning myself. That's, that's, that's the darkness. And if I can go down there and deal with it, maybe I'll come out on the other end. Cause in some ways, depression is my believing what I most fear about myself and what I most hate about myself. Those are true for all time. And, and so my depression is sort of saying, well, fuck it then you, you can't, what, what are you going to do? Um, so I, I do think I, I love the idea of Hermes as the leader into the underworld. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, for example, I, w- I was reading this text about the Nascenes, and they were, again, second-century Gnostics and very Judo-Christian, very mystery school, but they were serpent worshippers and all that. And at one stage of going underground, before you go into the astral porter, Hermes shows up. So I was like, wow, they even, they knew. Do you, in, in literature and your studies, are there any great writers or thinkers that embraced Hermes or mention him or really depended on him? Well, the, the, the period that I study most, Romanticism, most writers in that tradition, well, not most, but sort of like a, someone like a Blake or a Coleridge uh, in, in England and in America, someone like a, an, an Emerson or, or a Whitman, they were aware of the, you know, the, the, the Her- Hermes Trismegistus, you know, the, this kind of mythical progenitor of the so-called Hermetic tradition. Right. Uh, which is what um, you know, really kind of blossomed in, in, in what we, the early modern period. You know, people like Jacob Biama, Giordano Bruno, people like that who are kind of Neoplatonists in a way. Uh-huh. Um, so it does have a Gnostic feel, but the Demiurge isn't so bad. So, 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 so for me, I mean, that's, that's an important part. I mean, and, and I got interested in Gnosticism really by you know, reading the, the Emerald Tablets of, of Hermes Trismegistus, again, kind of a late, um, version of Gnosticism. But um, interestingly, there, there's a there was a French philosopher um, died 10 years ago. So his name was Jacques Derrida. Um, he was kind of famous for creating in, in my world, this movement called post-structuralism. Mm-hmm. He has this beautiful essay called Plato's Pharmacy, where he talks about how Hermes shows up in Plato and how Hermes is, is the trickster. And of course, Hermes in, in, Greece is like Thoth in Egypt. They're kind of the same. And he says, both those gods created language, interestingly. And, and, and what does language do? Um, well, it tricks us because it creates fictions. And this is one reason why Plato was very suspicious of language and suspicious of poets, because they, they trick you. But at the same time, Plato himself was, was a poet in a way, right? He wrote these brilliantly you know, dramatic dialogues with Socrates. So Derrida is really keen on the duplicity of Hermes as the creator of language and really interested in how literary language just intensifies the idea that language both deceives and reveals at, at, the, same, at the same time. So I would say that's, that's where Hermes shows up most prominently, um, in, in my world, you know, in thinking about what literary language does. No, that makes sense. And uh, I like how, um, oh, what was I going to mention? Going back to what you were saying about simple actions, yeah, they used to always tell me in AA, uh, 
make your bed in the morning. I thought it was the dumbest thing for my sobriety, but it made sense because if you could, you can control that, you could add on to it. And of course you hear about Jordan Peterson, clean your damn room. It sounds silly, but that you got to start somewhere. It's the habit. It's the habit. And this is why someone like William James, um, yeah, he was of course writing around the time you was a little earlier in America and, you know, his principles of psychology, he's the one who came up with the term stream of consciousness, but he was really fascinated by habit. And he said, you know, habits are ultimately what dictate our behavior. And most of us confuse habit with innate behavior. Mm. And he says, it's all habit. <laughs> you may think that you may think you have a set character. No, those are just the habits you've chosen, which, which is, there's a lot of hope there because it means that you can, you can learn to change those habits. Of course, it takes a long time and getting over addiction is what changing a habit and it can take years if not more sometimes and 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 you're right to say too that just the tiniest things if you do them over and over and over again over and over. They, become, they become habits and if you can make your bed every day well then maybe you can cut down to two drinks instead of three and then so on so on and so forth it sounds so simple but 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 i mean it the the underside the like the the ideas underlying it are, are profound i mean because because it really it really says there's no such thing as a fundamental self that that a, a self is like a series of choices we make from minute to minute and you might say oh fuck that that's terrible because there's got to be some like deep eric wilsonness or some deep miguel connerness like well maybe there's not you know maybe it's like i i create eric wilsonness from minute to minute to minute to minute so there's really no such thing other than what I'm choosing in each moment. So it's a terrible freedom. I mean, it's just a horrifying freedom, I guess. But Eric Wilson and Miguel can have a happy childhood in this new. That's right. We just shift our perspective. We look at things differently, and uh, and we can rewire our brain. I remember going into rehab, and uh, the counselor saying, "Well, you got to change your thinking, but your brain has decided that it's going to do anything for cocaine and alcohol. So how do you do that?" And me like. Wait, yeah, my mind is already made up. How do I fight my own mind? And that's where the Hermes is going into the underworld, tricking your own mind by making the bed, by faking until you make it. So tricking your own mind. That's great. That's what Hermes is. It is it's our ability to trick our, our own minds into, into healthier lives. That's fabulous. Yeah, and it's I mean, it's not all good news. It, again, it's great talking to you, and I love talking to other people why this initiative started, but you start looking at life, for example, look at somebody like, let's say, Aleister Crowley. I, I, I've studied him. He's never spoken to me as a spiritual leader. But I have to admit that he spent 90% of his time trying to expand his consciousness. He was always meditating, doing some magic spell, sex magic. Uh, he, his, whole astral, his whole life was for the higher worlds, despite his shortcomings as a human being. Sadly his life ended with him just being a heroin addict. And then uh, I look at somebody who I admire, who I think this guy has the greatest soul and that's Alan Watts. I mean, what a beautiful human. That's the, you can say he's beautiful. He's a beautiful, he's a beautiful human being. But yeah. sadly he ended up as a dying as an alcoholic. And I know it's because health issues led to drinking, led to alcoholism. So it makes me like, I am not out of the woods and I could end up like, like uh, Wallace, all these guys, uh, are there any stories of writers or great artists you think, well, this guy, he got to the end of his life happy? Or what's your take on the destructive nature of authors and seekers? 
Well, I, I, I want to loop back down on Watts for a second. I mean, he's a, he's a huge hero of mine. I mean, I, I've gotten through very, very dark times mm-hmm. listening to little cassette tapes in a, in a Walkman as I would go running or walking, and I would listen to these tapes over and over again, that, that gorgeous, you know, silvery British accent and his humor. And, but, yeah, I, yeah, I, read, I read his, um, his biography, uh, Zen Effects. I can't remember the author of it. And, he, yeah, he was a terrible alcoholic. He just drink a bottle of vodka a day basically near the end of his life. Um, so there's that gap we're, we're thinking about. Well, that gap shows up all over the place in, in, in my literary world. I think of Herman Melville would be a great example, who wrote the greatest novel ever. Uh, but his, his, his oldest son committed suicide in his bedroom while, while, while he, the family was there. And he himself had horrific depression and, and had a horrific marriage and basically didn't write anything significant for the last 40 years of his life. And, and, and he's just one of many and I think you know, we don't have to say that genius and melancholy are wed because they aren't necessarily. There are a lot of very happy men and women who write beautifully constructed novels and poems. But I, I really think that the the burden of, of choosing to live the life of the artist is is, is a, it can it can be a very heavy burden. Um, I mean, hell, any job's a heavy burden. I don't want to romanticize the life of the artist. That's not fair. But I just I, I think that. To, to have to be that vulnerable in front of people almost every day. I mean, that's, that's what artists do. They make themselves extremely vulnerable. This is what my insides look like exactly. <laughs> um, look at them. And will you publish my book? Will you buy my book? Will you put me in your museum? No, 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 no. So it can take its toll. And I, and I, and I think that's what's so heroic about people who choose this way of life. But yeah, it, it just destroys so many. Uh, yeah. so turned alcohol and drugs to deal with the rejection and the feeling of insecurity, so on and so forth. Yeah, I think too, I feel that the poet is the shaman of our times. It deals with language, but poets really go into the great unconscious, not their personal unconscious. I think they go into the collective unconscious. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, you know, the stuff, let's say, Emily Dickinson brings out or. Robert Frost, another very Gnostic person, like Melville, Moby Dick, the great Gnostic novel, but they bring out some powerful forces and demons out into the world. And yeah, the world is better because of this. What would we do without them? But they are the, like in ancient times, the shamans had to go to the underworld and fight these spirits. And sometimes they didn't make it out. well, you know, Joe, Joe Campbell, actually another hero of mine, um, kind, of, kind of along with Alan Watts, he, he talks about, you know, shamans in um, Native American culture and how a lot of these men were alcoholics because, because they, they're just, they were just wrecked psychologically because of all the work that they did. I mean, going down into these depths that you're talking about took a toll on their everyday, everyday lives. What I love so much about someone like Melville or Dickinson is that in some way they didn't know what they were doing in the best sense of the term. I mean, they, they got to places in their art for which there was no language to talk about that place. And they're like, well, what the hell do I do now? And there's just this kind of eruption of, of, of call it the collective unconscious, call it the great mystery of life, call it what you will. But for Melville to write Moby Dick in about a, a year, in about a year when he was like 31 years old, it just, it just came bubbling, sloshing out. And you read that book, and there are a lot of logical inconsistencies. There are some characters that show up and don't show up again because he didn't know what he was doing, but in a great way. In, in other words, 
if you control, if you're an artist of great control, a writer of great control, you can write a really good novel. But it's not going to be crazy and, and mind altering and kind of culture changing like 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 Moby Dick is. So I tell my creative writing students, you want to write yourself to a place where you feel really stupid. You know, if you're if, if you're writing and, it's, and you feel like you're in the groove and you're in the flow. Fuck it. I mean, you're 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 too easy on yourself. I mean, you, you really got to write yourself to a place where you don't know what you're doing anymore. That's hard to get there. But but I think that's where we want to get because that's where that's where the that's where the juice is. That's where the real stuff comes. Yeah, yeah the psychic energies. And exactly. I'm sure a lot of your students who probably will obviously look up to you, you're working with them, you're supposed to be working them for years. They must be full of fear and the unknown. What do you tell them for advice? Do you offer some authors or thinkers or again the cliche fear? Uh false evidence appearing is real. That's what I say. Until it happens. It doesn't exist. It's a construct of my mind. Well, I, t I, I don't. I, I used to think I was wise ten years ago. Now I think I'm pretty. <laughs> now I think I'm pretty, pretty idiotic. You're but, more like Socrates. You're getting closer I, to Socrates. I, guess, I, I hope, but I, I, I value. I mean, this is going to sound like the worst of cliches, but I just say don't take it so seriously. I mean, if if you, I mean, I feel like that's. I feel like that's part of our problem in life is we take things too seriously and we look for meaning with a big M. What does that mean? And when they write their essays and poems and stories, they're like, don't write something that means something. You don't care about that. Write about your radically unique, unprecedented, unpredictable experience. That's what we want. So I, I tell them, don't, don't, I say, look, life's meaningless. Don't search for meaning. Um, if you search for, search for tiny meaning, maybe, but don't search for big meaning because you'll either find it and dupe yourself into being a dogmatist or you won't find it. You'll be constantly frustrated. So you know, just 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 kind of find your groove and you know, find find what makes you happy during the day. If it's watching movies, watch watch movies. I mean, don't don't have to be profound. I don't know. I just feel like I feel like a lot of times the intellect can embrace intellectualism, you know, which is the kind of performance of understanding the world with the mind. And and believe me, I did that for years. But I just I, I really want them to have a sense of play because um, the world's, yeah, it's a terrible, horrible place, and it's hard to find any play, and it's easier for some to, to play than others because of their socioeconomic position, because of their ethnic position, all that. So I'm aware of all that, um, but I just, I really want them to get that when their mind is playing, that's when they're most themselves. Um, yeah, when Hermes is out having fun, that's stealing right. the cattle of Apollo Hermes. and yeah. doing the things yeah. that Hermes does, so uh, logos. And uh and the conversations we've had is about past conversations about American exceptionalism and we got to be happy and we got to have property and we got things. That, and of course your book against happiness talks a lot about this. I think your book is more relevant than ever because the American dream is out the door and we got to find something new. Don't you think Eric? That's a, that's absolutely the case. And then that goes back to the beginning of our conversation that, Yes, um, the American dream currently is 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 kaput, and and it won't, it has for have been for a while for yeah. most people. I mean, it's it's kind of been there for a certain certain socioeconomic echelon. Yeah. But yeah, I think I think that that the way we've been forced to look at America as a culture has been painful. A lot of people have suffered mightily, and I would never wish that on anyone over the past several months. But I do think it's an invitation to think about you know what. Not so much what does it mean to be American, but maybe so. I mean, because if America has always been, at least in its own mind, a place that values diversity, 
Uh, now's the time when it, we really can try to do that on a, on a concrete level, not only on an abstract level. And I certainly know at my university, you know, we're, we're, we're giving ourselves a very close look um, in terms of how we've dealt with issues of race. Uh, and I think, I think in a way we have an opportunity to be a real America now, not just a bullshit America. But but America is a place that can acknowledge you know and, and respect difference. I don't know. That's not so much economic, but economically, yeah. I don't know. I've I've, I've been living with a five year old stepson um, who can't go to school. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I've I've had to come up with a lot of uh, new ways to um, understand how I organize my day. So <laughs> I guess that's a good thing. I like a lot of people have done that. They've had yeah. to sort of think about new ways to interact with their children. That's great. I mean, that's that's some that's that's got to come out as a good thing of, of this terrible time. Yeah, that's wonderful. Uh, again, you know, I have, we have three small children. They're homeschooled, so we were. I was prepared. I keep saying I'm prepared for these Gnostic times, uh, right. this age of Hermes, as I call it, this Philip yeah. K. Dick world. I mean, uh, and uh, one last question, more um, sociological. Well, first, I wanted to say it's interesting, uh, and you can speak to either one of these last questions, but I love getting your thoughts on things. Uh, in one of our inter- interviews, we talked about the Iron, the sort of trickster character, the Hermes character. We talked about how this was in Greek times, but Iago, Bugs Bunny was one of those. And speaking of the American dream, uh, we said, uh, well, people, let's deal with Trump. I said, well, Trump is the American dream come true? I mean, you write about Norman Vincent Peale. Trump yeah. went to his church. This is America, the extroverted, bombastic. Yeah. Let's do that. We got the mm-hmm. president. We got the trickster god, the Igon that we that we deserve. And now we have to figure out what direction to take, regardless mm-hmm. of what your stance is. Is fine by you. The other one is conspiracy theory. I think we live. I say we live in Gnostic times because in ancient times, people accused the Gnostics of being paranoid. You know, the whole universe is deep state. There's an archon in every, my body, there's an archon on the rock, you know. Yeah. yeah. Everybody laughed at them, but now conspiracy theory is no, remember the days when conspiracy, I'd go to a UFO conference or a JFK conference and it was separated. Now conspiracy has just joined the fabric of our culture. What do you think about these two issues that you want to speak to from a psychological or literally level? I mean, obviously authors that you study were very paranoid to begin <laughs> yeah. with. Right? Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, definitely Philip K. Dick. Uh, <laughs> I think this, I, I think I'd like to think about the second issue you brought up because this has been most troubling to me. This, this idea that the, the kind of crazed conspiracy theorists have become mainstream. And this idea of there being some kind of empirical reality by which we measure claims is largely gone in, in most media outlets and for a huge majority of, of, of Americans right now. And I'm horrified by that. I mean, for, for, all, for all of my interests in the idea that language, that language constructs reality, that the way we name the world is the way the world will appear to us, that sounds fine in a classroom. But when it comes to people sort of denying hard truths handed down by the Center for Disease Control, I'm like, what the fuck? So, so I, I and there's no, I mean, I, I, I keep waiting for that grand cinematic moment when these people suddenly understand, like, oh, grandpa got the virus. We should wear masks. But those moments don't come. So, so if, if reality has, has fled in a way, what then? And so that, that's, that's, that's kind of where we are. And I mean, in other words, what, 
worldview, what actions will prevail in a world in which there is no reality principle, no empirical reality principle? When basically, you know, if, if you're not on my team, whatever I say, you, you say is false. Mm-hmm. And if, you know, and if you're not on my team, I'm, 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 I might do the same. What wins out? Is it charisma? Uh, is it, is it artistic grace? I don't know, but, but whatever wins out will probably not have a kind of traditional sense of integrity or authenticity. Cause I think the idea of integrity and authenticity are very much compromised now. Yeah. And I wonder, yeah, could it be just uh, sort of a built up anger? I mean, I mean, we live in a time with the Iraq war 2008. I mean, all the shenanigans of our leaders at the same time, we live in a time where minorities have been just completely brutalized. Our cities are war zones. It's been, it's been, I mean, I, I see both the left and the right, why they're so pissed yeah. off and yeah. why they don't trust anything, like kind of like the late 60s. So mm-hmm. in that way, I, I'm sure you can't blame yeah. them for rejecting whatever comes down the reality, reality tunnel. <laughs> well, it's interesting what you say. I mean, that, that, I mean, I'm talking about how in your most media, major media discourse, there's no, there's no sort of empirical principle. Mm. But when you look at bodies, in particular black bodies, that's reality. I mean, a lot of black bodies are being brutalized and killed. And that's a kind of energy that does have a reality principle. And, and maybe it's finally that kind of energy, which will push for some kind of hopeful change. Um, I mean, it's a dark time in America, darker than it's ever been since I've been, I've been alive and haven't been alive that long. And, but, but I think, you know, the, the good that's come from this is this acknowledgement of, 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 of the brutalization of black bodies. That, and a lot of people in America, white people, have just not been aware of the extent of it. And now suddenly, oh, wow, fuck, that's terrible. So, so, so maybe that, that's a counter to what I've just said. M- m- maybe on the one hand, you've got the conspiracy theorists who don't believe there's anything is real other than what I believe. But then you've got these suffering bodies and people gathering together around these suffering bodies, not black and white and other ethnicities saying, fuck that. And we're going to push against what the prevailing system for a better world. I mean, I, I think, I, I think, I think strangely enough, I mean, that's, that's, that's the kind of, there, a, a new kind of sensitivity um, might be emerging from this virus that wasn't there before. Again, when it comes to issues of race, um, that's the only thing so far that's come out of this that seems to be positive. So, yeah, yeah, indeed. The great questions, Miguel. I can't, I can't answer. No, them. I don't know. Well, I don't have the answers either, Eric. That's why we're here. I don't. There might not be answers. They're just finding yeah, ways yeah, to uh, yeah. overcome the fear, look inward, and make decisions from a place of wisdom. I think mm-hmm. that's that's really the best we can do. Nobody has the answers. No. no. So great apocalypse. I think this is a great <laughs> apocalypse, and as I say, it may not be the greatest time to be alive, but it's the greatest time to be awake because everything is being revealed from everybody. Beautifully put. Yes, I agree with that. Wonderful. Well, we're at the end. This has been a really great first Finding Hermes. For the audience, I do have the new features at the website for the program that's going to go. There will be more podcasts. We will try to, again, address mental issues, alcoholisms, the suffering that's going today. So, Hopefully we can get through this year and this uh, 
these Gnostic times that are ahead of us, as I say. But Eric, as always, I really appreciate coming you coming on, Aeon Bide, Finding Hermes, my house, wherever you are. I appreciate you very much. I feel the same way about you, Miguel. It's been a true pleasure talking. And, and seeing you face-to-face has been fantastic. It really has. Yeah. Thanks. And there you have it, my beloved truth seekers, the first episode ever of Finding Hermes. And thought I'd chime in since, again, it is our first episode and it's a special day or moment or new program. Uh, as many of you know, uh, Finding Hermes was a call that I had a while back and something from deep within me, a project to help others during these or any other times of stress, times of mental stress and times of mental pressure. And as I have found my Hermes, my hope is to help you find your own Hermes, find your mind, find the potential in your mind, find the healing of your mind. And of course, by mind, I go more into the classic term, the news or modern terms, the psyche of Jung. Always great to have Eric on. He's an amazing cat, a cool cat, and his contributions to literature, to the esoterica, and to Gnosticism in general cannot be overstated. Rock on, Eric, and thank you. As of now, there's really no schedule or rhythm to Finding Hermes. There will be other shows coming out very soon, and I hope to get into my own rhythm to get you that gnosis, those uh, that hermetic wisdom and Gnostic wisdom of the ages, to help you find your own Hermes, as I keep repeating. But the program is out right now at thegodabovegod.com and as well as Patreon. And as with as with the show, it will there will be more features and more rolling out of benefits and features and so forth. Right now, if you go to the GodAboveGod.com, to the subscription area, or to Patreon, you'll find two tiers. One tier is basically sort of a virtual Alexandria. It will be monthly meetings where we will meet as a group, and we will share... Well, things that have worked out for us. And I will share with you things that have worked out for me. I will also share the rituals, the magical practices, the insights that I have gathered on Gnosticism and Hermeticism for many years that you won't find anywhere else in such an authentic or holistic uh, way, if you would. Uh, that will be one of, uh, the, uh, things that we will share on this tier. And also we will share, um, well, what your problems are, what you need. We will also talk about the interviews too. Often I give interviews and we barely scratch the surface. So another option will be if you have questions about the interviews, about the guests, or about Gnosticism in general, we will discuss it. It's going to be very cool and in a way it's finally making the virtual Alexandria a reality very interactive. And of course, I will ask you as a group what you want to learn, what you need in your life, and you and what you want to share with the rest of us. So, um, as I say in the show, divided we stand, together we rise. 
but we'll be together very much in this tier. The second tier will be a more one-on-one, -on -one, similar to that. I'll find out what your needs are, and uh, we will discuss it. You want to discuss the show, you want to discuss uh, Gnosticism in general, you have questions for me, I will also, if you need, I will also provide a more personal connection with these Gnostic rituals uh, that have really helped out me. We can talk about addiction issues, mental issues, whatever you need from me, I will provide. Again, yeah. these are things that uh, have really helped me through my many years and have made me find Hermes and have made me really experience a lot of ecstasy and a lot of freedom in this crazy 2020. And it's time I share it with you. So check it out. And again, we will roll out more features in the next few weeks and the next months, and we will make the virtual Alexandria an incredible place that will culminate with a mystery religion project that I have where I will guide you down into the the undergrounds of Hades and up into the astral portals of the Gnostics. Very cool, and that's coming soon. Of course, I'd like to thank those who have really helped me out this year. As I like to say, or as I've learned, well, you cannot be fully divine or fully human unless you ask for help. That's what makes us human. That's what makes us who we are, and that's what helps us really find our potential. So with Finding Hermes, I have gotten a lot of help. And I'd like to thank individuals who made this happen. These include Alex Sakiris, Gordon White, Jim West, Beth Martins, and uh, Mitch Horowitz, too. All these individuals I consider my friends and have been there in various ways uh, during the process of getting Finding Hermes out. So thank you. And thank you all who support Aeon Bite in many ways on a weekly and monthly basis. So many ways. I, I can't thank you enough, but I'm thanking you now. One theme that I've learned this year is what I call laying the cards on the table. Or as Rush sang, rolling the bones in their song about defeating fate. After all, the only way to defeat fate, the only way to get around this bone-crunching destiny that we've had this year, is really through Gnosis, that awakening that breaks open the universe, that breaks open who we are and unleashes our divine spark. Very much like Neo did in the Matrix trilogy when he was a, when, when he was able to break open and break out of the bonds of the, the Matrix, that great representation of fate. So that's one of the reasons I'm doing that. I am laying all my cards down on the table. As Joseph Campbell said, uh, to be free, to be self-actualized, we must be transparent to the transcendent. I believe we have to be transparent to the world, too. We must open ourselves out and lay our cards down on the table. That's because your story matters. Who you are matters. Uh, your great narration, your journey across the spheres can help others and can make everything transparent where there is nothing to lose and nothing to gain. I think this is a very important theme this year. Cancel culture, no cancel culture surveillance state or not if we all become more transparent then the empire will lose much of its power and i'm laying my cards down on the table as i said this finding hermes is a risk i mean 
Somehow through the craziness of 2020, this day job I had, there was a huge culling. The whole company was broken apart. And it was sort of like uh, Samuel Jackson and John Travolta in Pulp Fiction when the guy's shooting them and they miss. There was The company was completely shot over by the by the top, by the archons of the company, and I survived. And somehow I ended up being a very well-paid consultant in this new dispensation of the company. But I have to leave this because my call is Aeon Bite. My call is Finding Hermes. My call is to inspire you, as so many other great lights that I have met in my life have inspired me, to again, to find Hermes, to unleash our potential, to unleash our power. So let's lay our cards on the table the rest of this year and moving forward, because like I said, we can defeat the Empire that way. We don't even have to fight it. With that said, I'd like to end with a poem. Let me see, where's the poem? And the poem is by Adyashanti, a spiritual leader and guru. And I think it exemplifies the theme of rolling the bones and laying your cards on the table and really writing your own gospel and living your own myth. So here it is. Oh, uh, Yaldi, Yaldi Baldi, you are the supreme being of the universe. Could you give me some music this time? Thanks, big guy. Here it is. Time to cash in your chips. Put your ideas and beliefs on the table. See who has the bigger hand. You or the mystery that pervades you. Time to scrape the mind shit off your shoes. Undo the laces that hold your prison together. And dangle your toes into emptiness. Once you've put everything on the table, once all of your currency is gone, and your pockets are full of air, all you've got left to gamble with is yourself. Go ahead, climb up onto the velvet top of the highest stakes table. Place yourself as the bet. Look God in the eyes, and finally for once in your life, lose. I hope this has helped. And thank you very much for being with me on our first episode of Finding Hermes. Hello and goodbye as always. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Place your money line 
prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.